Welcome, friends, to the podcast Care Package to Japan, where we showcase God's love for people through stories. And I am your host, Evangeline. In this episode, I am here with my very good friend, Heidi. Heidi is a lover of Jesus, and her and her husband, Jim, are evangelical covenant missionaries in Japan. And they've been in Japan for, I believe, more than two decades now. Is that correct, Heidi? It sure is. Wow. And both of their parents are missionaries in Japan, where they have been serving in the nation of Japan. And currently,、um, Heidi lives in this awesome mountainside called Mount Akagi, where they run the Akagi Bible School. And she is also a lover of all things. Outdoorsy nature and sports. And I just really love how she uses her God given talents to do ministry in every aspect of her life. And tennis ministry is definitely a part of that.、Um, so, yeah, let's get started. Heidi, thank you so much、uh, for joining me today.、Um, I've known you for, I think, since 2012. But for those who don't know you, do you mind just giving the audience a little bit of a picture into like who Heidi Peterson is? Honored to. Thank you so much for inviting me to your very cool podcast. My name is Heidi Boos Peterson. I was born in Tokyo, Japan in 1965. So if you can do the math, you can guess how old I am. Uh, I'm currently a grandma, so there you go.、Um, my parents were missionaries with Team Evangelical Alliance missionary,、uh, Missionaries, and my grandparents on my dad's side first came to Japan.、Uh, my grandpa in 1928, my grandma followed in 1930, and they were Liebenzeller missionaries from Germany. So、I've, my family's been in Japan for a long time, but I am blonde, and my name is Heidi, which I really like having that name in Japan. Because everybody, at least everybody over the age of 20, knows the story of Heidi, Arupsu no Shoujo, the girl from the mountains. So it's really easy for me to introduce myself, and nobody ever forgets my name. Didn't know you were born in Tokyo. That's so cool. So my husband and I were actually born at the same hospital. What? Yeah, the Seventh day Adventist Hospital, and probably. Over half of the missionary kids that were in our generation were born at that same hospital. What was it like growing up as a missionary kid? Well, for me, it was really normal. That's what I thought everyone's life was like, right?、Um, I have a little bit different perspective because my dad was also a missionary kid, and I will never take that for granted. I really appreciated、um, growing up in a home where one parent was a missionary kid. Home back in the same country where he grew up, and one was not. One, my mom was a straight up American who was living in a foreign land. So I had both of those perspectives、um, in my life.、Um, I grew up pretty much,、um, well, kindergarten was all in Japanese, and before that was all in Japanese. And so I consider Japanese my first language because I refused. To speak English. I was kind of one of those strong willed kids. And my parents were heading to America when I was going to be seven, and I really didn't like to speak English. So they made me start、um, going to Christian Academy in Japan, an English speaking school, early when I was five. 
So from the time of I was five, my education was all in English. So that I was really an English speaking blonde child being raised in Japan. There's two questions actually. So the first question is, how did your experience uh, with your parents both being missionaries shaped um, or or did it not um, contribute to like your your desire to become a missionary yourself? Um, that's that's definitely one part we can. Can I stop you right there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say I never really wanted to be a missionary. Ooh. Okay. So tell tell me the story of how this all happened. <laughs> we can we can roll that. <laughs> um, I was well. It never really crossed my mind that I would actually spend the rest of my adult life in Japan. I expected, like most missionary kids being raised in Japan, that we would graduate from high school. Go to America for college, and then probably spend our life in the United States or somewhere else. It just so happened that I、uh, was dating a guy who was also born and raised in Japan with missionary parents, and he was also in university in America, but he had a desire to go back to Japan. So that's kind of where it started from for us. And you're you're talking about Jim. I'm talking about Jim. Yep. Wow. So. You follow his calling, like he felt like he had a calling back to Japan, and you guys fell in love, and you're like, "Yes, I will be supportive of that." Is that is that kind of what happened? Um, so you know, I probably shouldn't tell his story, but he was going through college and didn't feel like he had a lot of strengths that could be used in America, where his strengths and his heart's desire was to be in Japan, and so. It was a matter of figuring out how to use his strengths in Japan that would work as an occupation as well. So, being a missionary was one of those options, and it's the one that God led us to. And we've been missionaries now for twenty-eight years. Twenty-eight years! Wow. Yeah, that's. That's quite a long time. Thank you for serving in Japan for the past twenty-eight years. It's been、okay. a privilege. It's been super fun. Yeah. Wow.、Um, so growing up,、um, what were some of your, what was your experience like?、Um, one being a missionary kid, and like, how would you share share that experience? Maybe in like, I don't know, like two to three sentences. Like what? How did how did having parents who were missionaries、um, shaped the way you view you view missions and particularly in Japan? Yeah, interesting question. I think every missionary kid has a different experience, so I think it's really hard to lump missionary kids together. Just as it's hard to lump、uh, third culture kids together, I think each of our experiences are unique, and I would say that even with the three girls in my family, just are. Placement and what my parents were doing at the time we were being raised makes each of our experiences in Japan different.、Um, so, having said that,、um, two or three sentences. What it was like, ah,、um, or or what did you? What were some things that you really enjoyed? Okay, well, the, I mean, this sounds weird, but I was a superstar from the time I was little. What does that mean? <laughs> I was like a rock star. Like everybody wanted to touch me and be near me, and you get this feeling that you're pretty amazing. Isn't that weird? 
Interesting. Do you think that's because? Oh, for the listeners who don't know, um, Heidi is completely Caucasian. <laughs> she's she's <Yeah>. white, <laughs> but yeah. speaks fluent Japanese. So actually, I don't speak fluent Japanese, but I speak really nice Japanese because it was my first language. And so people think I'm really, really good at Japanese, where I'm actually not, because all of my education was in English, and I don't read or write Japanese very well. So my vocabulary is actually quite small, but I can rattle off like I rattle off English. So you're just being humble, Heidi. Oh no, no, no! She, no. She's just being <laughs> humble. <laughs> so, um, but. I don't know. My dad was kind of a guy that attracted a lot of people. People wanted to be near my dad. I think my grandparents were like that as well. So just kind of a little bit. I mean, this is like I said, it seems really strange, but a little bit of a celebrity status because we were Americans living in Japan that could speak Japanese,、um, had friends, were popular, all those kind of things. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Can you can you talk about? So, would you say that's like within the context of the church, or even just like within the community itself?、Um, interesting, because、um, my dad always never was very、um, closely involved in a church. It was always para church ministries. So he ran a language school. He taught at a university.、Um, so. In that way, we weren't necessarily surrounded by Japanese. Well, I, I lived on a college campus till I was like six. So in that place, I was surrounded by Christians. But after, other than that, we were just regularly part of the Japanese community.、Um, and he would like commute into downtown Tokyo. So we lived in the suburbs of Tokyo. He commuted downtown. I went to an international school.、And、so we just kind of had that that blend. Would you say that that was still be true nowadays? Because, because、um, the reason why I ask that is, I would say like maybe like twenty, thirty years ago,、um, there were less foreigners in Japan.、Um, what do you? Def- what do you th- definitely,、mm-hmm. yeah. Like I could get modeling jobs super easy because I was a young blonde. That's it. Whereas when I went back to Japan as an adult and lived in downtown、uh, near Roppongi. There's all kinds of foreigners, so then it, then you had to actually be a model, you know, a tall, slim, from Europe type of model. But when I was growing up, like everybody wanted to talk to me on the train to practice their English. Wow, I had no idea. So did you did you feel like a outsider at all, or or you felt very embraced because like. You know the popularity. People wanted to come to you, talk to you, get to know you. Yeah, I never in my youth I never felt like an outsider in Japan. That is so interesting because that that's like not my、um, not my not what I would have imagined.、Um, but that is really cool. Yeah, and then when I went to the states, I remember my mom visited me in college in Seattle once, and she just looked at me and says, "How do you do this?" How do you go from being who you were in Japan to just being a normal person on the college campus? And that it caught me a little bit off guard, but it was like, you're right. Like nobody looks at me. I'm just a total normal person. And I said, actually, I'm enjoying it. You know, it's a nice break. Do you feel like you like subconsciously put on a different persona, or it's just like the environment、um, elicits like different responses? 
And this is totally not where I thought the conversation would go, but I love it. This is so interesting. Yeah, it's not about Japan. It's about me, and I apologize. No, 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 no. This is is about your experience in Japan. Very interesting. Yeah. And that's why kind of I said, you know, even my family, all three of us girls had different responses to being born. And so um, I think it was already in my personality, I think, but I think being raised in Japan made me more of who I am now and going back there to live as well has definitely shaped my personality in a huge way. Wow. What are, what are some things that, um, like either from like growing up in Japan or even just like being married and like being, being a young couple in Japan and, and then raising kids in Japan, like, do you think you're able to identify some differences between how that's different than let's say somebody who lives in the u.s like how they approach approach life definitely um being able being allowed having the privilege of raising our kids in japan after jim and i were both raised in japan ourselves um it's just an incredible gift and i say that first of all for just safety being allowed to give our kids as much freedom as we gave them. Um, and watching my sister raise her kids here in Colorado and watching how protective she was, it was just like, oh, I'm so glad that my kids could hop on their bikes and go wherever they want. They could play in the park till dark. It was like, that was a gift. So that's one thing that really hops out. Um, baby number two, Kendra, was born in Wisconsin because we were in the States that year and I wanted to have her with a midwife because I'd had my oldest son with a midwife in Tokyo and midwifery is illegal in Wisconsin. At least it was in 1993. And so I couldn't, I had to cross the border into Canada if I didn't want to go to a hospital. So, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of differences in how you can raise kids in different parts of the world. So hiring a midwife was not legal during, during that time or like you had to go to the hospital. Uh, I, I would not have been legally allowed to have a home birth with a midwife in, in the state of Wisconsin in 1993. And that was allowed in Japan? Uh, I, I could have definitely had a home birth. I ended up going to a midwife clinic when my two sons were born to the same clinic in Tokyo. I was an incredible experience to have babies on a tatami mat. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, you're so cool. You, I'm just learning all these new things about you. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when I first visited your home. This is like a totally different different topic, but I remember when I first visited your home in Mount Akagi. Well, well first I was like, where am I going? Because I remember Jim picked me up from the train station and we just like kept going up all the like up all these like switchbacks and I'm like, "Oh, we're still going up." Like <laughs> like it's not ending yet. Like we're still going up this mountain. And I remember when I when I first set foot into your home, your beautiful home in Mount Okagi, I remember seeing this thing. I think it's called the Idori. Is that what it's called? It is. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, wow, where am I? Like, how do you describe what that is? Because because most homes in Japan, well, most homes in the metropolitan area like Tokyo and in Osaka, like, I don't think they have this, yeah. right? don't and our home only has an EOD because our home was a restaurant we live in a soba restaurant oh I had no idea (laughs) (laughs) 
there's a YouTube. My son Eli made a YouTube of walking into a soba restaurant that's now a home of missionaries, but it's kind of cute. Um, so an Eodi um, was an old style Japanese cooking area inside a house. So it's got um, a place for charcoal burning and a table, kind of a table wrapped around it with chairs. And we never use it because if you burn in charcoal inside your house, it's just gonna make your house all sooty, which is what an old Japanese house would be all sooty because they had straw roofs. So it didn't matter if they turned darker brown, they didn't have white walls. So in that restaurant, it was just a sitting place and uh, antique that they had in there that when we moved in, we heard the story that the former owners, the ones who bought it after it was a soba restaurant, wanted to get rid of it. And so they tried to move it from the corner of the store out the front door, but they couldn't make it. It was just too heavy. They had all these people helping them, but they gave up. And so they left it right in the doorway. And that's where it is now. You know what the... Um... So when I saw it, when I came to visit, it was like hanging, like a tea, oh, is it a teapot? Yeah, or? a teapot that's hanging. Yeah, it's very traditional to have just a big pole hanging from the ceiling and with a tea kettle there that you're just burning hot water or boiling. And then you would remove that and put a pot there to cook your noodles or whatever you were cooking. Is this very traditional Japanese, like, like hundreds of years from something like that? Yeah, maybe thousands. I don't know. Thousands. Wow, that's really cool. That is really cool. Do you want to tell the story about what Akagi Bible Camp is and how, how did you guys um actually I don't know I don't think I know the story of how did how you guys kind of inherited um um Akagi Bible Camp. Yeah. So we work for the Evangelical Covenant Church and we've had a number of different assignments as missionaries. We spent 10 years as church planters in Guma Prefecture. And then uh, we spent 10 years where my main ministry was teaching at Christian Academy in Japan, the same school that Jim and I went to when we were missionary kids. And our kids all ended up going there. And once our youngest had graduated, we had freedom to go wherever we wanted to go or wherever the covenant wanted to send us, the, the NSKK, the Japan Covenant Church. And so we said, we're open. We are willing and ready to leave Tokyo if there are other places that would like us to serve um, their churches. And there was an opening at Akagi Bible Camp. Um, there'd been some full-time staff there, but there hadn't been anybody living there full-time for eight years. And the camp needed some love. And for Jim, it was, it was a homecoming. Uh, his dad was one of the missionaries that had helped find helped help to find the location back in the 1950s when it was the missionaries that were look, were looking for a place where they could have a camp as camping ministry was kind of a new thing in Japan. And uh, so for him as a kid in the in the covenant, his parents were covenant missionaries, they would have retreats there and they would spend time there in the summer at Akagi Bible Camp. So when he heard there was an opening there, he asked me if I would have any interest in moving up to Akagi. And I said, wow, that would be interesting. Um, let's try it for a year. So that was back in 2014. I left my job at Christian Academy in June and we moved into Akagi Bible Camp and it was summer season and it started with a bang. So we just started working camp ministry all summer and we finally caught our breath in September and said, oh, yeah, that's crazy. That was a lot of work, but super fun, really exciting ministry to be around so many Japanese Christians and seekers. And 
the challenge was going to be that first winter and that's why i only promised one year and we made it through our first winter it's it's not really snowy up there but it's super windy and super cold and can get quite isolated um but it was kind of fun and we've been there seven years now and we may be there until we retire wow yeah do you mind painting a little bit of just like background for people who are not familiar with one like what a bible camp is and two like the location of akagi because because like some listeners might be imagining like i don't know like lake tahoe or something <laughs> um <laughs> yeah um mount akagi is one of the hundred famous mountains of japan it is one of the ones that's closest to tokyo so in a car if there's not much traffic you could be in downtown tokyo in three hours from the suburbs of tokyo where we were working it's actually just a two-hour drive to the top of mount akagi and the camp is located at a thousand three hundred and fifty meters and i'm not even guess what that is in feet but wow, uh, that might be like more than Two thousand feet. Yeah, I think I might, little, I might be wrong, but yeah, it's a little bit under two thousand feet, and I should know, but <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Wow. But um, it is on like there's one road that winds all the way up the mountain, and the peak of the mountain is a thousand eight hundred and twenty-eight meters. So we're pretty close to the top from our from the camp. You can climb to the highest peak in under an hour, no problem, and the views from there are magnificent. You can see the Southern Alps, the Northern Alps. You can see Mount Fuji. Um, if you look out in one direction, you can see Tokyo, which I really like. You can see Tokyo, but you're not in Tokyo. I can see the sky tree. I can see Shinjuku, um, but it's really far away. It looks really far away. So you're in a different world. So the main attraction for that camp is that it's cool in the summer. The cities in Tokyo get really hot and really muggy and anybody who can wants to escape from that heat. And even right down in our city, Maebashi, which is a 40 minute drive away, is always 10 degrees Celsius warmer than it is at camp. And there's no mosquitoes. So there's lots of pluses to this camp. So um, Bible camp. Um, Akagi Bible Camp has traditionally been a camp that served the Japan Covenant Church. So they had elementary camps, middle school camps, high school camps, young adult camps, church retreat camps, whole denominational camps. And then as there were fewer and fewer youth in the churches, oh, and they always had English camp. That's what us missionaries always went every summer and helped with the English camp. Um, there were fewer and fewer youth uh, in the churches. And so they would combine some of the camps and then they started renting out. Maybe they did it from the beginning, but they rented out the facilities to other groups that wanted to use it. Mostly other churches in the area who would want to use the camp facilities. So um, it is an old ski lodge. So it was bought by the Japanese Covenant Church uh, when it was already a used ski lodge on this mountain. Akagi skiing is nothing to brag about. In fact, right now there's a sign that says Japan's smallest ski area. Welcome to Mount Akagi ski slopes. Um, but when skiing first became popular in Japan, it was a place you could get to from Tokyo and they did have lifts and uh, gondolas and it was really popular. Now there's not much of a ski area at all, but the main attraction now in the winter is ice fishing. It's one of the few lakes that still freezes over consistently every winter on the main island of Honshu. 
Is that um, something you guys do regularly? Go uh, ice fishing? I don't. <laughs> I don't do summer fishing. Um, but it's really popular. So every weekend, there's a long line of cars that are coming up the mountain so that they can sit on the ice and dig a hole or cut that hole open and put their little hooks down in the water and catch a few fish. Yeah. And can you just like kind of like describe the location of the of the house or, or the camp and like in relation to to other neighbors and what that's like? And yeah. yeah. So there's about 15, maybe less than that, I want to say, like between 10 to 15 family units that live on top of the mountain. And the mountain has three crater lakes. So we actually live in the crater of a formerly active volcano. It has not erupted in a long time. Mount Akagi likes to brag that it was actually bigger than Mount Fuji before it started erupting we're talking thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, and losing its top and is now the shape that it is now. But it left behind three craters, um, crater lakes, and we live between two of them. The largest lake is five kilometers around, so about three and a half miles around. And that's the popular lake for little stores. So all the other residents, I would say almost all the other residents live right on the shores of Onuma, the big lake, and they run little souvenir shops and restaurants, and they rent out paddle boats and small motor boats. There's also a shrine on that um, lake. You kind of have to cross a little bridge. It's on a little bit of a peninsula. And that is a very popular shrine. And people come all year round to visit that shrine. And what else is up there? The other two lakes are much more isolated. One is a marshy area that they call the mini Oze, small Oze. Oze is a national park area in Japan, and we're about two hours away from the main Oze area. But this is a marshy area with, um, what do they call it, like planks to walk on so you're not hurting the ground. And there are about 270 different species of blooming flowers right in that marshy area. And then the upper lake uh, is the one I really like. It's super quiet with sandy beaches and you're not really supposed to do anything on the water. So there's no um, commercialization around there. But it also has seven main peaks. So it's really a hiking mountain and uh, a winter hiking mountain because it's the closest consistent snowpack of any mountain close to Tokyo. So a lot of people that are like practicing to climb in the Alps are practicing to go um, overseas to hike in snow country, come to Akagi to practice putting on their crampons and ice, using their ice axes and stuff. I know there's like so many outdoorsy things to do around Akagi. Like what is your favorite activity around, mm -hmm. around, around um, your home in Akagi? So most listeners would say, oh, they got lakes. So they swim and stuff like that. Well, swimming in the lakes in our prefecture is actually illegal. Like you're not allowed to swim in the lakes. You can swim in the rivers, but you're not allowed to swim in the lakes. So that's really, oh. and that's culturally strange to us. But we were kind of pushing, I mean, like I would just be swimming in the lake, but then I'd be in trouble. And Jim's like, we're here to be missionaries. You need to behave yourself. So I really try to behave myself. But one thing I was pushing <laughs> was that we could at least get some kayaks in the water. They'd never, at least as long as we've been there, had kayaks in the water. And there were some people that would sneak in their uh, stand-up paddles, like 
as it was getting dark from a different part, like not near the commercial area. And I, oh, I want to do the same thing. I want to have a stand-up paddleboard or a kayak. But anyways, about three years ago, they started finally allowing some kayaks, private kayaks on the water between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., like the worst times when the other commercial boats are out there, but it's a start. And that's continued now for three years. So I like kayaking, even though I haven't, haven't gotten to do it very much. Um, Akagi snowshoeing and hiking are definitely my two favorite activities since I'm not allowed to swim. Can you tell people what snowshoeing is? Because like I've known you, so I've seen pictures on Facebook. <laughs> but, for, or something. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but for people that like have no idea what that is, how would you like describe describe what that is? Yeah, so there's different kinds of snowshoeing and the most normal snowshoeing is just like hiking in the snow. But instead of sinking down, so if you don't have snowshoes on and there's thick powder snow, each step is really difficult because you sink deeply into the snow. Or if the top of the snow is crusty from ice, then and you break through that, then you like up to knee deep in cold, wet snow and you have to take your foot out and take another step and it's just miserable. Whereas if you have the right snowshoes on, you just glide on top of the snow and it's just wonderful. You can run, you can mostly, I mean, a lot of people just like to go snowshoeing across the lake, which is covered with ice with a thin layer of snow on it, which is amazing. Cause it's like, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm walking on the water, except that it's frozen, right? Um, or you can climb a mountain with your snowshoes on. And it's actually easier to climb a mountain with snowshoes on than it is to hike because there's no rocks. It's just like snow. And you just oh. get to go up. Yeah, without having to go up, down, up, down over things and worried about tree roots and stuff. You can just right. kind of hike. So it's super fun. Have you always been super outdoorsy and love nature and mountains? So grew up in downtown Tokyo. But my earliest memories are living on Tokyo Christian University campus. So this was a big grassy campus and it had two tennis courts. I want to say two. I think it had two tennis courts and my dad liked to play tennis. So we would walk across the grass. I had a dog named Princess and we'd play tennis and then we'd walk back. And those are just kind of my memories of childhood. Um, and then um, my father inherited his parents house cabin up in a place called Karizawa, which is in the mountains of Nagano. And so whenever he needed to get out of the city, he would always pack the whole family into the car and we would do the long drive. It's not a long drive anymore, but back then it was a super long drive to Karizawa and we would just spend time in nature. We had a nice big yard and my dad just loved raking leaves and made us a big tire swing. And so we would just play in the yard or go for bike rides. So I, that was just normal life for me was being outside. And then uh, I studied to become a physical education teacher and I would much rather be doing something outside the gym than inside the gym. So I always preferred those units when I was outside, except when it rains, that's not so fun. I don't know if you know this, but you are really cool, Heidi. <laughs> because like most of the people that I'm surrounded with, like don't have these type of hobbies or like, <laughs> or, or not to the extent that, that you and Jim like take it so i i really admire and love that about you guys how you like fully fully embrace it which is really cool so this year actually um 
oh, because of COVID as well, but I like to kind of stay in touch with the sporting community in, in America as well. So I'm on some Facebook groups and some challenges. So there was a challenge from January 1st, I think till the end of February to try to exercise outdoors every day, no matter what was going on with the weather. So I did that and I've kept it going. So I've actually exercised outdoors and I don't even call it exercise. I just move, have fun outdoors every day this whole year. So it's like 330 days now, almost. Wow. And for listeners that don't know Heidi, her her quote unquote being outdoors means like running a half marathon. Like <laughs> or like, I don't know, like like you're so cool and like so I don't know how your body does it because I'm I am just like at the edge of like the end of my 20s but i'm feeling my body just like breaking down i went for a run this morning like oh. it was it was maybe like three miles and i'm like ah, oh, like my my joints hurt <laughs> but i love that i love that you. it's probably just because you're not regular at it right. and i'm exactly the same way if like if i don't do it every day because i do it every day it's so much easier that's really cool that's really cool plus i mean you mentioned something about worship earlier but for me, like God is so much closer when I'm outside. Can you talk about that? Like, how do you, how do you connect with God when you're like, do you feel his presence more when you're in nature, when you're, when you're outdoors? Yes. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm sure it's just, maybe it's not just me, but like buildings are a barrier to me. And so even here I'm outside, mm -hmm. but I can see outside. But this morning I spent 30 minutes on the deck, stretching, reading my Bible, watching the sunrise. That oh, just, that's amazing. That, that's, that's just where I am when I want to connect with God. That and is beautiful. I'm inside, I'm doing something I have to do. And then as soon as I'm done doing whatever I have to do, I'll be outside. And I do feel like the people in Japan have this appreciation for nature that, I mean, not, not to say that the people in the US don't, but it's like a different type of like a deeper awe of like connection to nature yeah i think it's just a really different way of living like mm -hmm. traditional japanese homes always opened out into their courtyard or you just kind of lived halfway between inside and outside i mean the city has really changed that but even still japanese don't hop in their car in the garage and go to work they're going to walk to a train station. They're going to be outside at least some part of the day. Most Japanese will be. I I, I remember um, a few years ago when you were... So Heidi loves, love, love, loves outdoors. And she's also like... <laughs> I feel like you do so many sports like snowshoeing, hiking, running, half marathon, swimming, kayaking, and also tennis. You mentioned tennis earlier. Isn't, you, isn't, isn't being a missionary like rough? <laughs> so rough, so rough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for listeners yeah. out there who, yeah, for people who are hoping to become missionaries, like, hey, they're non-traditional path and this is great. <laughs> That's right. That's totally right. Um, non-traditional path. So, um, I like to try new things. That's part of my personality as well. Mm -hmm. And I just really wanted to be super open to the opportunities God brought into my life to do sports or to be outdoors with people. And so this has been a really fun last seven years for me because I, I've called it my um, period of saying yes. 
And amen to that. I've been able to say yes. Before it was, I had to say, no, I can't do this. I can't do that. But now I can say yes. So my main chance to get to uh, try new activities is because people ask me if I will do it with them. Um, trail running, that's just all because people ask me if I would go to races with them. Um, I've been able to translate at world class, like the world championship trail running event that was held in Japan. I was asked to be a translator. I'm not really a translator, but he liked that I can run with them and be with them and get to know the world class athletes on a personal level. So that, I mean, I just had such incredible opportunities because God has allowed me to say yes. I can do it. I can be there. Yes, I can do that. Amen. Quick question. What do you think, um, like, like you described the last seven years as like this, like, yes season. And like, I'm just asking for like my personal, personal say, cause I want to know, like, 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 do you think it's like in different seasons or do you think there's ways that like I can position myself to kind of like, like catch those opportunities and say yes? Like, is it just like saying yes to more things or? No, I wouldn't say that, but I would say, yes, you can catch it. And I would say, yes, you already do it, Evangeline, because like even just making this podcast, you get a thought in your head and then you say, yeah, let's try that. Or going to Japan to help with tsunami relief. You said, yes, you didn't say, no, I can't do that. That's too far away. You said, yes. So I think it's just not saying yes to everything. And you still obviously have to say no to certain things, but that sense of being really open. And, you know, I had decade when I was raising kids and really busy with that and teaching English at church and being the wife of a church planting missionary. So I couldn't just run off and do other things, except my husband would say I ran off anyways. I went to Australia for like half a month, but I'll tell you a little story. My grandma, She's my role model. I never got to meet her. This is my grandma who was a missionary in Japan. And after having six children, she got a gift, a monetary gift from some supporters in Germany. And it was for her to use however she wanted. And she decided to spend a few weeks in the mountains skiing. So this is the story I get growing up. My mom, my grandma died early, but that she was one that said, okay, I'm done with my work. Now let me play rest, relax, and spend time in the mountains with God. And that's my role model. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love that you really embody what it means to work hard, but also play and rest and just like be who God created you to be. Um, that is really beautiful, Heidi. That is really beautiful. I mean, it's not all, I mean, we make it sound really rosy. It's not all rosy, but I'm <laughs> grateful for this. I mean, I taught school full-time and coached full-time for 10 years in Tokyo. So after that 10 years of church planning, we had 10 years in Tokyo. Fortunately, it was the suburbs of Tokyo and I was teaching at the same school my kids were at. So I was very involved teaching and coaching and head of the department and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that was, that was really hard work. I was really tired and, uh, you know, uh, so I've just given myself the chance to not get super involved in things that are going to require me to be in the same place, like every week, like weekly commitments. Like even if I'm going to teach a group of people English, I'll say, can we do it twice a month? Just to give myself that freedom to be open to other things. Yeah. And you're doing so many beautiful things. Yeah. That's really cool. 
So have I told you about my latest hobby? No, what's your latest hobby? So I'm trying to climb the 100 famous mountains of Japan. Okay, I think I knew that, <laughs> that. And, and you, wait, I think, wait, do, actually, I don't know if I knew that because when I visited your home in Akagi, I remember seeing a blue, it was like a blue, was it a blue, like written down all the words of the different mountains? Is that what you have? Like a little? Oh yeah, like a tenugri. Yeah, like so yeah. a cloth. Yep, and I put little stickers on the ones that I've climbed. Yes. <laughs> That's so fun. So we moved to Akagi and it's one of the 100 famous mountains of Japan. So then it was like, okay, so when fall season comes and we're not working super hard at camp and I got some days off, I want to climb the ones that are closest so that I can maybe guide them sometime if someone wants to go climb that one or climb this one. And then it just, the circle kept getting bigger and I really caught the bug. Like there are some beautiful mountains and there are a hundred of them. And there are so many Japanese uh, normal people who are out there hiking these mountains. It's just a part of the culture. And so to be able to get into that has been super fun. That's really cool. Yeah. And COVID really helped because um, camping, season, uh, camping season is in the summer and most hiking season is in the summer. But these last two seasons, we've had very few large camps and much more time when I didn't have to be on site at camp. So last year I climbed 32 of them and this year I climbed 25 of them. So I've climbed Whoa, no way. the last two years, yeah. <laughs> wow, Heidi, that is incredible. It's been super fun. So I'm at 90, so I'm feeling really close. Oh, and you're so close. <laughs> my goal when I started was to finish all 100 before I turned 60. And then my husband laughed and said, you're never going to climb all 100. And you know what that does? That just makes me want to do them more. So that's what Yeah, I get it, girl. <laughs> wow. But the first one I climbed was Mount Fuji, which is often the one that people climb last. But that was the one I climbed a few times with my father starting in elementary school. So now that my father has dementia and I'm right now in Colorado visiting him, it's just really special for me to be able to spend time up in the mountains. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It just reminds me that like, there's something special about mountains. Like, I don't want to get too spiritual, but there is something very special about mountains. Yep. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Well, hi. Yeah. <laughs> talk to people because you're just hiking next to somebody and you're not like, you know, they just start asking you questions. You ask them questions. All of a sudden you've made a friend and, uh, you can spend Do you feel like you meet new people like all the time during, during these hikes? Uh, yes. And the really cool thing, you know, I mean, a lot of people are anti-Facebook, but, um, in Japan, there's also a thing called line, but I'm kind of a Facebook people and a lot of uh, mountain people are too, because they can just pop up their pictures. They are our Instagram. So people will be like, oh, are you on Facebook? And then like, we can communicate for a long time and if we want to. So that's been really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, we're, we're almost at the end of our time. So I just want to say thank you so much for just telling us your story and being who God made you to be. I think it's so cool to, to see that. Um, and I like to ask this question to all my listeners before I end the podcast. Um, what is something, it can be food, it can be like an item, it can be a phrase, um, or it can be a mountain. <laughs> but what is something that is Japanese-y that you absolutely cannot live without? 
I'm going to say seasons because I think, well, it's interesting because Tokyo area is where I've been. So it's the middle of Japan. So I think it might even be the place that has like the most um, clear cut seasons, like three months, this three months, this three months, this three months, this. And so you have these seasons and in Japan, it's not just four seasons. They have like 12 seasons that they actually identify, but they're really a part of the culture and everybody always talks about the weather. Like every time you meet somebody, you have a conversation about the weather, whether you want to or not. And so that's something that's just part of who I am. I've lived in California uh, and I really, really liked it because summer is my favorite season and I'm a sunshine girl. And when you're in Colorado, it's like you have four seasons in one day. But I do really like the Japanese part of having four distinct seasons that last a good three months that take their time and don't really jump around too much. Well, I remember when I visited you, it was right at the cusp of like spring and all the cherry blossoms were starting to bloom, which was like absolutely beautiful. Like it was still slightly chilly, um, but the pink from the cherry blossom was just so gorgeous. Heidi, before we end the episode, do you mind saying a prayer of praise, mainly to just like thank God for his beautiful creation in specifically Japan, because there's so many beautiful things that he deposited in that land, like mountains, like different species of flowers. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your care for each one of us and that you created each of us and placed us in the time and the place where you wanted us to be during our gift of being here on earth. I thank you for our mutual love of Japan and I thank you for the opportunity I had to live my most of my life there and I thank you for the beauty of that land. I also thank you for the people of Japan. Lord, I pray that you will bless Japan that you will open the eyes of the Japanese people to see you even more clearly, to worship the one true God, that they might really come to know you as their Lord and Savior. So Lord, I just thank you for the beauty of the land, for the waterfalls, for the gardens, for the mountains. And I thank you for the call that you've placed on so many um, non-Japanese lives to go to Japan and to share your good news. And I thank you for the Japanese Christians and for their strong faith I ask that you will just uh, work in each life of the people that know you, that they will even have stronger faith in you and be able to share the joy of knowing you with the people around them. And I pray for so many that do not know you and so many people that are desperate for hope and peace in their lives, that your uh, love and your kindness and your light will shine on them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That was such a beautiful prayer. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, friends, for listening to this episode um, of Care Package to Japan. Once again, the purpose of the podcast is to showcase how much God loves Japan through stories of people. Um, so if you would like to share your experience with us on the podcast, feel free to email me at carepackagetojapan at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you as well. So that's it for today. Thank you, everybody. Bye.